0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 125, Andrew Budzinski, Overhauling Rules of Evidence in Pro Se Courts. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Andrew Budzinski. Andrew is an assistant professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia's Clark School of Law. There, he is the co-director of the General Practice Clinic, as well as teaches family law and civil procedures. Our podcast today features Andrew's recent article, Overhauling Rules of Evidence in Pro Se Courts, which was recently published in the University of Richmond's Law Review. In it, Andrew tackles the problem of applying the rules of evidence in pro se proceedings. Although we normally think of the rules of evidence as a tool in the service of fair and accurate fact-finding, you can quickly imagine how they might go awry in pro se proceedings. Litigants with little legal training can quickly become mired in the complexity of the evidence rules. And the result is that valuable evidence might be lost because the pro se litigant simply doesn't know how to respond to a more well-seasoned or crafty adversary. As a consequence, the rules can potentially harm accuracy, litigant satisfaction, and the overall fairness of the proceeding. My conversation with Andrew today looks at the problem of evidentiary rules in pro se proceedings and what we can do about them. Andrew, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Let's set the stage. So your article, of course, deals with courts and other tribunals that feature largely pro se litigants. Maybe you can give us some context. What kinds of proceedings are you largely talking about here? Sure. So these are
1: proceedings in state courts, usually specialized state courts, and primarily in the areas of courts where they deal with family law cases, domestic violence, small claims, and landlord-tenant disputes.
0: And as I understand from your paper, you seem to have observed a lot of pro se litigants in either your practice now or your former practice Is that what got you started on the paper or was the inspiration from somewhere else?
1: That's exactly how I got the inspiration for the paper. So I've been in clinical teaching for the past six years and primarily practicing in D.C. Superior Court's Domestic Violence Division, which heavily features pro se litigants, survivors of intimate partner violence who are seeking a protection order against their abusive partner. And by observing those cases and also in the time I spend in the companion family court, I've seen pro se litigants try to navigate these processes and stumble and interact with judges who just don't seem equipped or ready to assist them. And it really got me thinking about why we have these systems set up this way and how we can make them better.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the problem. One of the things I really liked in the article is that you grounded the discussion in a case study, so specifically looking at a family law case with some specific evidence and Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about that case study and use it to show some of the problems that pro se litigants face in applying the rules of evidence.
1: Sure. So the example I give is of a parent in a custody case. And one of the reasons I use that example is because custody cases involve one person against one person, parent against parent. And so there's a relatively equivalent power system there. And I use the example of an online report card a fairly modern piece of evidence that a parent might try to introduce to show that their child is excelling at school or how they're doing under their care. And at gut level, if you were to pick someone off the street and ask them, should a judge be able to read that report card? They'd say, yes, that makes a lot of sense. It would be fair for the judge to see how the child is doing in school. But under rules of evidence, as most lawyers would know, a litigant would have to meet the evidentiary standards to get that report card and evidence, and it's harder than it might seem. So I sort of break it down in the way an evidence professor might, that the report card has to be relevant, it has to be authentic, and it has to be sufficiently reliable. And and in this case, that mainly means it doesn't present hearsay. And overcoming those evidentiary obstacles is, first of all, much easier for a lawyer who's trained to identify and atomize the facts about that particular piece of evidence and convince a judge it should be admitted than it is for a layperson, for someone who doesn't have that training.
0: And presumably it becomes even more of a problem when what you have is one party, and this often happens in family law type cases, one party is represented, the other one is not. And so it becomes a tactic where the lawyer says objection hearsay, and then the pro se litigant has to struggle with the rules of evidence, trying to figure out business records exception and the like.
1: That's exactly right. And two pieces there. One is that lawyer has to make that objection, right? They have a professional obligation to raise the objection, provided there's a good faith basis to do it. And the second is that unrepresented person has likely never thought of or heard of the business records exception. It's not intuitive even that a school is a business. And of course, in evidence parlance, we've shifted to talking about that as a regularly conducted activity. That doesn't really fit either. But in reality, what that litigant would have to do is show that that report card was produced or kept in the regular course of the school's business. It likely was. And they'd have to either get a custodian, someone who keeps that record, to come into court and testify to that, or in some jurisdictions, get an affidavit from that same person saying that it meets all those criteria. And I'll note in DC, our evidence law actually doesn't allow those self-authenticating affidavits. So they would actually have to get the school employee to come in and testify. They're unlikely to know they have to do that. And even if they do, it can be challenging to get that school employee in on the record. And so that puts the judge in a position where either they have to exclude it because the litigant can't meet those procedural requirements or admit it anyway even over a fair and valid objection.
0: Is there any effort to educate the pro se litigants about these rules? Because presumably, they need to know ahead of time to do some of these things in order to have the evidence admitted.
1: So I'm glad you raised that because it depends, in my experience, entirely on the judge.
0: And so we
1: have some judges who are really great on this score in my assessment. They will, in hearings leading up to an evidentiary proceeding, tell litigants, you have to come in with all your evidence, bring anyone you want me to talk to, bring any paperwork you want me to look at, any documents. In the pandemic age, they've had folks actually upload those things onto Box, which the court sponsors. And so there is a lot of dialogue about making sure you have your evidence and witnesses available. In my experience, there's less dialogue about whether that substantively will be admissible. In the proceeding, judges, by and large, try to help litigants understand the rules. They'll try to say, well, you can't tell me what someone told you out of court. That's called hearsay. Or you can't tell me what you think this person is thinking. That's speculation. And I think that that's hit or miss. And different judges have different levels of patience or time, frankly, on busy dockets to engage that kind of explanation. So it really does depend.
0: I've actually often wondered about this problem of the rules of evidence and pro se litigants. So you probably don't know this, and probably the audience doesn't either, but from time to time, I talk with the judges on the Workers' Compensation Court here in Tennessee, and they are required to impose the rules of evidence as of about a decade ago in their proceedings. And as you might imagine, many workers' compensation claimants are pro se, and they, of course, struggle with the rules. And the scenarios are very similar to the ones that you described. So the litigant will come and say, well, I have it on my phone. Can I just show you on my phone? And of course, that raises a number of problems. There are the hearsay problems. There's the problem of how do you admit that into the record? There are all kinds of problems that are created because the claimant doesn't know about the rules. And at the same time, and I think you have this in the family court context as well, the judges are acting as fact finders. So you don't have the traditional justification for shielding juries from bad evidence and needing a whole set of administrative rules. And I think also at the end of the day, the whole point of having these kinds of administrative proceedings, this is particularly true in the workers' context, the whole point of it is to get away from all of the procedures and all the costs associated with the procedures in regular litigation. You have a sense of what the allure is of imposing the rules of evidence in these contexts, like family court. Do you think that they're just unthinkingly imposed because they're just thought to be the right way to run a proceeding? What's going on here?
1: I think that's part of it. We have an assumption That rules of evidence and most procedural rules are neutral and equally applicable no matter where you put them. And I don't think this comes from an unthinking place. I tend to think that we started applying rules of evidence in proceedings like this because it's important that those proceedings involve some benchmarks of fairness, right? That there are some rules that govern them to ensure, just as the rules of evidence were designed to do back in the 1800s, that judges aren't going off on their own and making unmoored decisions that are biased or unfair, that they are born of some set of rules. But I think one of the challenges that is presented in these courts is exactly what I'm writing about, that the rules of evidence, the ones that were written in the federal system, the ones that are codified in state courts and have developed by common law over centuries, really assume there's going to be a lawyer who can unpack and apply them. And they don't consider that it's going to be normal folks applying those rules. And as a result, You get some really substantively unfair outcomes from what I tend to think is a well intentioned application of procedure to proceedings.
0: So, you're identifying costs to the application of the rules of evidence, and you talked about how it negatively impacts the fairness of the proceedings. Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about the costs of this one-size-fits-all approach to evidence. And you characterize it largely as an access to justice problem, but I thought maybe you could explore that some more.
1: Sure. So I think there are a couple facets of this that I get at in the article one of them is an access to justice problem. But as I've mentioned, state courts in these kinds of cases almost overwhelmingly have unrepresented folks that and this is a recent trend over the last 50 years compare the 70s when somewhere around 10% of folks in family cases were unrepresented to today where it's more like 75 to 90% that we have to meet that reality. And part of that is recognizing who is applying these rules and how complicated do we really want them to be how burdensome based on that reality. But the other piece is procedural justice, which is essentially that litigants experience a process as fair, and that when they walk out of the courtroom, they think that was a fair process, and therefore they have greater faith in the system, and they're more likely to comply with the results, whether they're favorable or unfavorable. And that really matters to a rule of law system. And so reforming rules of evidence to make sure that they are more fair, that they are also experienced by litigants as more fair, goes to that procedural justice piece.
0: There's also a substantive accuracy piece, which you raised earlier. If you're talking about the electronic report card and the litigant can't actually admit that piece of evidence, technically, the court is not actually looking at that piece of evidence, which actually is probative and admissible. It's just that the litigant can't offer it because they don't know how to do it.
1: That's exactly right. And the irony there is, if the litigant did know how to do it, that's exactly the kind of exhibit that the rules of evidence say is so likely to be reliable that it should be admitted and considered. It's just because they couldn't put forward those particular and of liabilities of a judge to allow them to admit it.
0: So it's interesting, you end up having all of these different costs that are imposed. So you have the procedural fairness concerns, the the substantive accuracy concerns, and then we also explored a little bit the power dynamic concerns where if you have one party with representation and the other without, then you end up with unfairness between the parties. Let's talk about your proposal, or at least what might we do about the problem. In the paper, you talk about how some courts or some of these proceedings have no rules of evidence at all. And You're very skeptical about having no rules of evidence. Why so?
1: I think that opens the door for that unmoored bias decision-making by judges that we were talking about earlier. And I think that's something we do need to counteract. I tell my students all the time, judges are just people in robes. And so they bring to those proceedings all of the implicit bias and stereotyping and other flawed decision-making metrics to their judicial decision-making. And so it's important both that we educate judges and train them on how to stave off that unreliable decision-making, but also that we don't put a cloak around it. If we don't have any rules of evidence, then judges are making decisions behind closed doors without any explanation, any requirement to explain why they're considering or not considering evidence. So if the only thing that judges are considering about evidence is its weight, then We empower judges to make decisions based on that flawed, biased, stereotyped thinking and without any mechanism for correcting
0: it. So one response to that, though, is the familiar complaint about rules of evidence in any kind of bench trial, which is that since you don't have bifurcation, it is effectively a kind of game that is going on. So the judge hears the evidence or knows the evidence is coming, declares it inadmissible, but then can't unring the bell. So my colleague Chris Guthrie is sort of famous for having co-authored a bunch of studies on this. So why would having admissibility rules in these really bench trial contexts be helpful?
1: I think it goes back to the procedural justice piece. It's not just that we want judges to sort of get it right. We also want litigants to feel like the process was fair, to experience it as fair. And so what rules that deal with admissibility versus just weight do, I think, is force judges to explain why they're engaging the decision-making they're engaging. Let litigants into that process and then ultimately let litigants know judges are applying some objective metrics to their decision making. So, but they'll walk out of the courtroom and think, yeah, that was a process. That wasn't just one person's unmoored opinion.
0: Okay. So, say we want evidence rules in these largely pro se proceedings. What should they look like?
1: So, it's a challenging question for me to answer because one of the things that I raise in the article is. I can't answer that in a vacuum. That context matters so much, and that the rules of evidence in, as we just sort of discussed, uh, workers' compensation cases might look very different than they do in family court, or than they do in consumer debt collection cases, or landlord-tenant cases, where one of the parties is very likely to be a well-resourced, probably corporate entity, and the other an individual. And so Broadly speaking, what I lay out is a way for those decision makers in those particular kinds of courts to fashion rules that are contextual, that do consider who's applying them and who's in the courtroom. And at base, that involves simplifying the rules. And what that simplification entails is going to depend on that context, but making them accessible to folks who don't have a lawyer and not requiring them to jump through all those hoops that we talked about while still ensuring that powerful resourced parties can't abuse that simplification. The other piece is training and reconceptualizing the role of judges in those courtrooms. So as I mentioned, I think it's critically important that judges are not just incentivized, but possibly required to interrogate evidence as it's coming in to solicit some of the facts about evidence that would render it admissible under the rules, but also to explain what they're doing so that that procedural justice piece is accomplished.
0: Philosophically, your context-based approach to the kinds of rules that we should have is rather interesting because I think in some ways the rules of evidence were designed to try to make evidentiary rules more uniform. And what you're suggesting is that perhaps not topic by topic, but that there should be different evidence rules in different courts or different contexts. Do you want to say more about that, whether or not that's an intentional move that you're making there, or that it may be something that you need to think about some more?
1: So it is intentional. I think we need to accept that it's not strictly true that treating differently situated parties differently is unfair. This rests on an assumption that it's more important for the same complex, burdensome rules to apply to all parties, regardless of resources, regardless of power dynamics, regardless of location, even if that achieves a subjectively unjust outcome, that it's more important for those rules to apply similarly. It also, I think, assumes that these rules are neutral. And I just reject that premise. We need to accept that. Power and wealth means you are both more likely to be sophisticated and have resources and more likely to have lawyers. That poverty means you're more likely not just to not have access to lawyers, but to need these courts to be in circumstances that require you to access the courts and therefore without a lawyer. And so I think it's essential that we consider that when we're fashioning these
0: rules. Final question for you. What's next for you? Where does your research go from here? That is such a good question, and
1: I am still figuring it out. (laughs) So I'm going to consider more how procedural rules are applying in these courts. I've written previously on how service of process rules negatively impact pro se folks. I've shifted to look at how evidence rules negatively impact pro se folks. And I'm thinking next of looking more on how we set up structures in domestic violence courts and whether they're really achieving the outcomes that we're hoping that they do.
0: And just to follow up, there's something there, I think, that suggests that you think that more procedural rules may be necessary when attorneys are involved. So in fact, the simplified rules are not something that you would want across the board, but that in fact, when you have representation, it is actually better to have more rules or more complexity. Am I reading you right on that?
1: Yes, but just if I could reframe that slightly. It's not just the complexity for complexity's sake. It's more when are we going to ask folks to prove up those indicia of reliability. So if we think of reliability as a sliding scale, it's how much can we trust the characteristics of the particular evidence or exhibit to prove that versus how much extrinsic evidence do we need to prove it. So the report card is a great example. If it's in family court, litigant A against litigant B, we might empower a judge to look at that printout and say, okay, there's a URL, there's the school logo. This looks like what an online report card would look like. I'm going to say that's sufficiently authentic and reliable to admit it. If we were in a different context in a consumer debt collection case, where, and I talk about this in the article, corporations are routinely admitting affidavits that say this is the person who's subject to the debt, well, in some cases, we found out that was being signed by someone who had no personal knowledge. Well, we might heighten the requirements there and require that employee of the corporation to come in and testify rather than rely on that hearsay evidence. So I think that that's another way of going back to the power imbalance example. It really does depend on what resources and power the parties have and how likely it is that those resourced powerful parties can abuse those simplified rules. Well,
0: Andrew, Thanks for taking the time to talk about how the rules of evidence might adapt to pro se proceedings. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fantastic. Beyond addressing the immediate problem of fair proceedings for pro se litigants, Andrew's article ties nicely with a growing trend in evidence scholarship that argues That the evidentiary rules shouldn't be considered one-size-fits-all, but rather should be tailored for specific contexts. And the choice is not a binary one as to whether you have the rules of evidence or not, but rather which rules are appropriate for which contexts. For example, in addition to Andrew's excellent work, Henry Wong, featured earlier this season on this podcast, has examined evidentiary rules for bench trials and arbitration. Lynn Daggett has recently looked at evidence in Title IX proceedings on university campuses. And there are also works by Maggie Whitlin looking at evidence in preliminary injunction proceedings and Stephanos Bibas on evidence in sentencing hearings. As we touched on in the podcast, one of the threads that binds many of these efforts is that they involve contexts that are without juries. Without a jury, exclusionary rules of evidence arguably make far less sense. For one thing, without bifurcation, judges who rule evidence inadmissible can't unring the bell, so to speak. For another thing, the absence of concerns about protecting the province of the jury might enable us to develop rules that were more directly targeted at weight and inference, rather than merely admissibility. I'd expect more scholarship along these lines as time moves on. The other thread that I'd eventually like to explore more Is this tendency toward viewing the evidence rules as one size fits all? We tend to think of the evidence rules as monolithic and almost unthinkingly import them into other contexts. Andrew has raised some interesting and perhaps radical ideas. The idea of having different evidence rules depending on the parties that are involved, whether those parties are represented, and perhaps the topic of the proceeding. Whether you agree with him on all these points or not, he certainly has provided lots of food for thought. After all, how we can best prove things is not always the same for all contexts. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. Thanks also to Harvard Law School, which is hosting me for the fall semester. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kyra Hammond, And music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.